Welcome to a continued reading of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander from chapter 14 and page 171 of the Banner of Truth edition. This appears when the Christian is gradually left off from close walking with God, loses the lively sense of divine things, becomes too much attached to the world and too much occupied with secular concerns. Until at length the keeping of the heart is neglected, prayer and the seeking of the Lord in private are omitted or slightly performed, zeal for the advancement of religion is quenched, and many things are rejected by a sensitive conscience and now indulged and defended. All this may take place and continue long before the person is aware of his danger or acknowledges that there has been any serious departure from God. The forms of religion may still be kept up, and open sin avoided, but more commonly backsliders fall into some evil habits. They are evidently too much conformed to the world, and often go too far in participating in the pleasures and amusements of the world, and too often there is an indulgence in sin, known sin, into which they are gradually led, and on account of which they experience frequent compunction, and make solemn resolutions to avoid it in future. But when the hour of temptation comes, they overcome again and again. Unless they live a miserable life, enslaved by some sin, over which, though they sometimes struggle hard, they cannot get the victory. There is in nature no more inconsistent thing than a backsliding Christian. Look at one side of his character, and he seems to have sincere, penitential feelings, and his heart to be right in its purposes and aims. But look at the other side, and he seems to be carnal, sold under sin. O wretched man, how he rise often in anguish, and groans for deliverance. But he is like Samson, shorn of his locks, his strength is departed, and he is not able to rise and go forth at liberty as in former times. All backsliders are not alike, some are asleep, but the one now described is in a state of almost perpetual conflict which keeps him, awake, him wide awake. Sometimes when his pious feelings are lively, he cannot but hope that he loves God and hates sin and is encouraged. But oh, when sin prevails against him and he is led away captive, he cannot think that he is a true Christian. It is possible that one who is thus overcome can have in him any principle of piety. Sometimes he gives up all hope and concludes that he was deceived, never thinking himself converted. But then again, when he feels a broken and contrite heart and an ardent breathing and groaning after deliverance, he cannot but conclude that there is some principle above mere nature operating in him. The sleeping backslider is one who, being surrounded with earthly comforts, engaged in secular pursuits, and mingling much with the decent and respectable people of the world, by degrees loses the deep impression of divine and eternal things. His spiritual senses become obtuse, and he has no longer the views and feelings of one awake to the reality of spiritual things. His case nearly resembles that of a man gradually sinking into sleep. Still he sees dimly and hears indistinctly, but he is fast losing the impression of the objects of the spiritual world 
and sinking under the impression of the things of time and sense. There may be no remarkable change in the external conduct of such a person, except that he has no longer any relish or religious conversation, and rather is disposed to waive it. And the difference between such and one and the rest of the world becomes less and less distinguishable. From anything you see or hear, you would not suspect him to be a professor of religion until you see him taking his seat at the Lord's table. Such backsliders are commonly awakened by some severe judgments. The earthly objects on which they had too much fixed their affections are snatched away, and they are made bitterly to feel that it's an evil thing to forget and depart from the living God. There is still another species of backsliding, in which by a sudden temptation, one who appeared to stand firm is cast down. Such was the fall of Peter. Many others have given full evidence that a man standing is not in himself. For frequently men are overcome in those very things in which they are least afraid, and have most confidence in their own strength. These cases are usually more disgraceful than other instances of backsliding, but they are less dangerous, for commonly, where there is grace, they produce such an overwhelming conviction of sin and shame for having acted so unworthily, that repentance soon follows the lapse, and the person, when restored, is more watchful than ever against all kinds of sin, and more distrustful of himself. Such falls may be compared to a sudden accident by which a bone is broken or put out of joint. They are very painful and cause a person to go limping all the rain day of his life, but do not so much affect the vitals as more secret insidious diseases which prey inwardly without being perceived. There are many persons who never make a public confession of religion, who for a while are the subjects of serious impressions, whose consciences are much awake, and whose feelings are tender. They seem to love to hear the truth, and in a considerable degree fall under its influence, so as to be almost persuaded to be Christians, and for a season give to the pious lively hopes of their speedy conversion. They are such as the person to whom Christ said, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, but through the blinding influence of avarice or ambition, or some other carnal motive. They are led away and lose all their serious thoughts and good resolutions. Such persons usually lose their day of grace. I have seen an amiable young man weeping under the faithful preaching of the gospel, and my hopes are sanguine that I should soon see him at the table of the Lord. But alas, I believe that on that very day he quenched the spirit, and has been doing further and further going further and further from the Lord ever since. The backsliding believer can only be distinguished from the final apostate by the fact of his recovery. At least, when Christians have slidden far back, no satisfactory evidence of the genuineness of their piety can be exhibited, nor can they have any which ought to satisfy their own minds. In the course of pastoral visitation, I once called upon an habitual drunkard who had been a flaming professor. I asked him what he thought of his former exercises in religion. He said that he was confident that they were genuine, and expressed a strong confidence 
that the Lord would recover him from his backsliding state. Now here was the very spirit of antinomianism. Whether he was ever recovered from his besetting sin, I cannot tell. But I rather think that he continued his intemperate habits to the very last. I have often noticed how tenaciously the most profane and obstinate sinners will cleave to the hope of having been once converted, if they have ever been the subjects of religious impressions. One of the profanest men I ever heard speak, and one of the most outrageous drunkards, when asked on his deathbed, to which he was brought by intemperance, respecting his prospects before beyond the grave, said that when a very young man he had been among the Methodists and thought he was converted, and though he had lived in the most open and daring wickedness for more than twenty years since that time, yet he seemed to depend on those early exercises. Miserable delusion. But a drowning man will catch at a straw. An old sea captain whom I visited on his deathbed seemed to be trusting to a similar delusion. He related to me certain religious exercises which he had when he first went out to sea, but of which he had no return ever since, though half a century had elapsed. I have met with few persons who had neglected to cherish and improve early impressions, who were ever afterwards hopefully converted. They are generally given up to the blindness of mind and hardness of heart. But some of these are sometimes brought in, in times of revival, or at a late period, driven by the gospel refuge, by severe affliction. The conviction of a Christian backslider is often more severe and overwhelming than when first awakened. When his eyes are opened to see the ingratitude and wicked rebellion of his conduct, he is ready to despair and give up all hopes of being pardoned. He sinks into deep waters where the billows of divine displeasure roll over him, or he is like a prisoner in a horrible pit and in a miry clay. All around him is dark and desolate, and he feels himself to be in a deplorable, helpless condition. His own strivings seem to sink him deeper in the mire, but as his last and only resource, he cries out of the depths unto God. As his case is urgent, he cries with an increasing importunity, and the Lord hears the voice of his supplications. He brings him up out of the horrible pit, and places his feet upon a rock, and establishes his goings, and puts a new song into his mouth, even praise to the Redeemer. The freeness of pardon to the returning backslider is a thing which is hard to believe until it is experienced. No sooner is the proud heart humbled, and the hard heart broken into contrition, than Jehovah is near with his healing arm. To heal the broken in heart, and to revive the spirit of the contrite ones is the delight of Emmanuel, and he receives the remaining impenitent without reproaches. He pardons him freely, sheds abroad his love in his heart, and fills him with the joy of the Holy Ghost. It is in fact a new conversion, though there is but one regeneration. We never hear of a sinner being born a third time, but we remember that Christ said unto Peter, when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Indeed, the exercises of the soul on these occasions may be so much more clear and comfortable than on its first conversion 
that the person is disposed to think that this is the real commencement of spiritual life and to set down all his former experience as spurious or at least essentially defective. Christians, when recovered from backsliding, are commonly more watchful and walk more circumspectly than ever they did before. They cannot but be more humble. The remembrance of their base departure from God fills them with self-loathing. Whenever spiritual pride will lift up his head, one thought of a disgraceful fall will often lay the soul in the dust. And whether the backslider's sins have been open or secret, the recollection of his traitorous behavior fills him with shame and self-abhorrence. When such persons have so conducted themselves as to bring upon them the censures of the church, so as to be separated from the communion of the Lord's people, at first, it is probable, resentment will be felt towards the office of the church who perform the painful duty. But after reflection, these resentments are turned against themselves, and they pass much heavier censures on themselves than the church, than the church ever did. Judicious, seasonable discipline is a powerful means of grace, and often would be the effectual means of recovering the backslider if exercised as it should be. Indeed, this may be said to be one main design of this appointment. If, whenever there is an appearance of declension in a church member, the pastor or some other officer of the church would go to the person and in the spirit and by the authority of Christ would address a serious admonition to him and then a second and a third and if these were unheeded then bring him back before the church backsliding in most cases would be arrested before it proceeded far. But all members of the church have a duty to perform towards erring brethren. When they see them going astray they should not act towards them as if they hated them, but should rebuke them in the spirit of meekness. Christian reproof from one Christian to another seems to me almost banished from our churches. There is a quick eye to discern a brother's faults, and a ready tongue to speak to them up to others. But where do we now find the faithful reprover of sin, who goes to the man himself without saying a word to anyone, and between themselves, faithfully warns, exhorts, and entreats a strained brother to return. The serious discipline of formal accusations and witnesses, etc., by such a course would be in a great measure rendered unnecessary. But the practice is to let the evil grow until it has become inveterate and breaks out into overt acts. And then there is a necessity to pay attention to the matter and to put in force the discipline of the church. But even this often proves salutary, and is a powerful means of reclaiming the offender. Or, if he persists in his evil courses, it serves to separate an unworthy member from the communion of saints. But when church officers and private Christians utterly fail in their duty towards backsliding brethren, God himself often makes use of means of his own, which do not require the intervention of men. He smites the offender with his rod and causes him to smart at some tender part. He sends such afflictions as brings his sins forcibly before his conscience. He deprives him of the objects for the sake of which he forsook the Lord. It may be of the wife of his youth or of a beloved child 
on which his affections were too fondly fixed so as to become idolatrous, or if it was the love of the world which was the seductive cause of his backsliding, riches are caused to make to themselves wings and fly away like the eagle to heaven. Or was the love of ease and indulgence and the sensual appetites the cause of his delinquency and slope falls on his own body? He is brought low by sickness and is tried upon his bed with excruciating pains until he cries out in his distress and humbly confesses his sins. Or if he was carried away by an undue love of the honour that cometh from men, it is not unlikely that his reputation, which he cherished with a fondness which caused him to neglect the honour of his God, will be permitted to be tarnished by the the tongue of slander, and things may be so situated that, although innocent, he may not have it in his power to make the truth appear. Children, too much indulged, become by their misconduct fruitful causes of affliction parents. Unless they are made to suffer in the very point where they had sinned, look at the case of Eli and of David. All afflictions, however, are not for chastisement, but sometimes for trial, and those whom God loves best are most afflicted in this world. They are kept in the furnace, and then heated seven times, until their dross is consumed, and their piety shines forth as pure gold, which has been tried in the fire. But we are now concerned only with those afflictions, which are most effective to bring back the backslider, the virtue of which the psalmist acknowledges when he says, It is good for me to be afflicted, for, but, for before I was afflicted I went astray. It may be truly said that many who had backslidden never would have returned had it not been for the rod. Other men seem to have lost their power, but this comes home to the feelings of everyone. Whether a believer is ever permitted to go out of the world in a backslidden state is a question of no practical importance, but it seems probable that Christians die in all conditions in which any of this character are ever found. No one has any right to presume that if he backslides, death may not overtake him in that unprepared condition. Backsliding, then, is a fearful evil. May we all be enabled to avoid it, or if fallen into it, to be recovered speedily from that so dangerous a state. Chapter 15 The Rich Man and the Poor The Various Trials of Believers They are not happy whom the blinded world think to be such. The man of successful enterprise and increasing wealth had some enjoyment while busily occupied in making a fortune. But now when he has arrived at a greater picture of wealth than his most sanguine hopes had anticipated, he is far from being happy or even contented. The desire of acquisition has grown into an inveterate habit and he cannot stop in his career. He must find out some new enterprise. He must engage in some new speculation. And before all is over, it is well if he loses not all he had gained. Being accustomed to live high, he is unprepared to meet poverty and to preserve his family from such a mortifying change of circumstances. He contrives ways and means to defraud his creditors. This man is not happy in his prosperity 
and then the reverse of fortune, he is truly miserable. He has put away a good conscience, which is the most essential ingredient in that peace which Christ gives to his disciples. His reputation, too, if not tarnished, remains under a dark cloud of suspicion which never can be removed. In the world around, he meets with neglect and sometimes contempt from those on whom he once looked down. At home, he has before him the sad spectacle of a family degraded from its former rank and under all the feelings of mortified pride, struggling to conceal their poverty from the gaze and contempt of an unpitying world. But even if no reverse is experienced, and the man continues to be successful in all his enterprises, and if at the close of his career he can calculate millions in the bank or in real estate, his only remaining difficulty is how to dispose of such a mass of wealth. He has a son, it is true, but he is a base profligate, and in a single year would, by reckless speculation, or at the gaming table, dissipate the whole which has been so carefully hoarded up. And yet this man could scarcely be induced to give a dollar to any benevolent object, lest he should lessen the amount which he was, by every means, raking together for his unworthy son. He has daughters too, whose husbands, in selecting them, had more respect to their fortunes than to any personal qualifications, and these are impatient that the old man should live so long and hold the purse strings which so close a grip. Though they will go through all the ceremonial of deep grief and mourn as decently and as long as fashion requires, yet no event is heard with more heartfelt pleasure than that their aged relative is at last obliged to give up all his possessions. Are the rich happy? not such as have been described. But there are favoured few who seem to have learned the secret of using wealth, so as to do much good, and to derive from it much enjoyment. They are desirous of making increase too, but it is all for the Lord, not to be hoarded until they are obliged to leave it, and then to be distributed among benevolent societies. No, they are continually contriving methods of making it produce good now. They are parsimonious to themselves, that they may be liberal to the poor and be able to enrich the treasury of the Lord. Such men are blessed in their deed, and though ostentatious in their charities, their light cannot be hid. A few rich men of this description have lived in England, and even our new country records with gratitude the names of a few benefactors of the public. And we trust in God that the number will be multiplied. Reader, go and do likewise. But more commonly, the elect of God are called to glorify him in this way. Wealth is a dangerous talent. More common, sorry, more, but more commonly, the elect of God are not called to glorify him in this way. Wealth is a dangerous talent. It's very apt to block up the way to heaven. And they who do press in have, as it were, to crease through a gate of as difficult of entrance as the eye of a needle to a camel. Unless many professors who bid fair for heaven when in moderate circumstances, after becoming rich, are found drowned in petition, pierced through with many sorrows. 
poverty and suffering are by infinite wisdom judged best for the traveller desire. Yet the Lord's people be contented with their condition and thankful that they are preserved from snares and temptations which they would have found it difficult to withstand. God will not suffer them to be tempted above what they are able to bear, but with the temptation provides a way for their escape. The rich are exposed to suffering as well as the poor, though their sufferings may be of a different kind. The poor man may be forced by necessity to live on coarse bread. The rich man also, while tantalized with the daily sight of the finest of the wheat, is obliged for the sake of his health to live upon bran. The poor man lies on a hard bed because he can afford to get no better. The rich man lies as hard to preserve himself from the aches and pains which are the natural fruit of luxury. The poor man has little of the honours of the world, but then he is envied by none and passes along in obscurity without being set up as a mark to be shot at by envy and malignity which is often the lot of the rich. When sickness comes, the rich man has some advantages. But when oppressed with painful sickness, neither a bed of down nor rich hangings and carpets contribute anything to his relief. And in such a time of distress, the privations of the poor, though the imagination readily magnifies them, add not much to the pain produced by disease. But we have dwelt too long on this comparison between the real sufferings of the rich and poor. More, after all, depends upon the submission and patient temper of the mind than upon external circumstances. And indeed, so short is the time of man's continuance upon earth, and so infinite the joys or miseries of the future world, that to make much of these little differences would be like estimating the weight of a fella when engaged in weighing mountains. Who thinks it a matter of any concern whether the circumstances of persons who lived a thousand years ago were affluent or destitute, except so far as these external enjoyments and privations contributed to their moral improvement or the contrary? If we could be duly impressed with the truths which respect our eternal condition, we should consider our afflictions here as scarcely worthy of being named. Thus the Apostle Paul seemed to view his own sufferings and those of his fellow Christians when he said, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Compared with the sufferings of others, those of the Apostle were neither few nor small, but in the view of eternity by faith. He calls them these light afflictions, which are but for a moment. And he had learned the happy art, not only of being contented in whatever state he was, but of rejoicing in his tribulations. Not that tribulation, considered in itself, could be a matter of rejoicing, for whoever found pain and reproach to be pleasant. But he rejoiced in these things on account of their salutary effects. For he says, tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. 
The primitive Christians were encouraged to bear patiently and joyfully their present sufferings on account of the rich and gracious reward which awaited them in the world to come. Upon the mere principle of contrast, our earthly sorrows will render our heavenly joys the sweeter. But this is not all. Hear the words of Jesus himself. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Peter also testifies, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ once suffered, the just for the unjust. He was also of the same opinion with his brother Paul, that Christians ought to rejoice in all their sufferings for righteousness' sake. Beloved, says he, think it not strange concerning the fiery tile which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of God rests upon you. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him be not ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Let Zion's mourners lift up their heads and rejoice, for though weeping may endure for a night, Joy cometh in the morning. Let all Christians manifest to others the sweetness and excellency of religion by rejoicing continually in the Lord. The perennial source of their spiritual joy can never fail. For while God lives and reigns, they ought to rejoice. Since Christ has died and ever lives to make intercession for them, they have ground of unceasing joy. While the throne of grace is accessible, let the saints rejoice. Let them rejoice in all the promises of God, which are exceeding great and precious, and are all, yea, and amen, in Christ Jesus, to the glory of God. In one sense, all our sufferings are the fruits of sin. For if we had never sinned, we should never have suffered. But in another sense, the sufferings of believers are produced by love. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourges every son whom he receiveth. As in the economy of salvation, God leads his chosen people to struggle with the remainders of sin in their own hearts. So he has ordained that their pilgrimage to the heavenly Canaan shall be through much tribulation. From the beginning, the saints have generally been a poor and afflicted people, often oppressed and persecuted. And when exempt from sufferings from the hands of men, they often visited with sickness or have their hearts sorely lacerated by the bereavement of dear friends, are punished with poverty or loaded with obloquy and reproach. There seems to be an incongruity in believers enjoying ease and prosperity in this world. When the Lord was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, it seems indeed to be a condition of our reigning with him that we should suffer with him. 
when James and John, under the influence of ambition, asked for the highest places in his kingdom, he said to them, Can we drink of the cup which I drank of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They seem not to have understood his meaning, for with self-confidence they answered, We are able. He replied, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. For a Christian to seek great things for himself here does not become the character of a disciple of the meek and lowly Jesus. The early Christians were called to endure much persecution, but they did not count their lives dear unto them. When the apostles, after our Lord's ascension, were publicly beaten for preaching that the Saviour was risen, they rejoiced together that they were counted worthy to suffer such things for his name's sake. It is a striking peculiarity in the religion of Christ that in the conditions of the discipleship, taking up the cross is the first thing. He never tempted any to follow him with the promise of earthly prosperity or exemption from suffering. On the contrary, he assures them that in the world they shall have tribulation. He does indeed promise to those who forsake father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, houses and lands, a compensation of a hundredfold more than they had left. But he permits them not to fall into the delusion that this hundredfold was to consist in earthly good things. For he immediately adds, with persecutions, Whosoever will not take Christ with his cross shall never sit with him on his throne. No cross, no crown, holds out an important truth in few words. In his intercessory prayer, Christ does request for his disciples that they need to be kept from evil which is in the world. But he means from the evil one, from the evil of sin, from temptations above their strength to endure. The reason why Christ has chosen that his people should be afflicted and often sorely persecuted are not difficult to ascertain. We have already shown that the rod is one of God's means for recovering his backsliders from their wanderings. But afflictions are employed also to prevent Christians from backsliding in prosperity, pride is apt to rise and swell. Carnal security blinds their eyes. The love of riches increases. Spiritual affections are feeble. And eternal things are viewed as far off and concealed by a thick mist. These circumstances are indeed the common precursors of backsliding. But to prevent this evil and to stir up the benumbed feelings of piety, the believer is put into the furnace. At first he finds it hard to submit, and is like a wild bull in a net. His pride and his love of carnal ease resists the hand that smites him, but severe pain awakens him from his sleep. He finds himself in the hands of his heavenly Father and sees that nothing can be gained by murmuring or rebelling. His sins rise up to view, and he is convinced of the justice of the divine dispensations, his hard heart begins to yield, 
and he is stirred up to cry mightily to God for help and grace. Although he wishes and prays for deliverance from the pressure of affliction, yet he is more solicitous that it should be rendered effectual to subdue his pride, wean him from the love of the world, and give perfect exercise to patience and resignation than that it should be removed. He knows that the furnace is a place for purification. He hopes and prays that his dross may be consumed, and that he may come forth as gold, which is passed seven times through the refiner's fire. Paul attributes a powerful efficacy to afflictions, so as to place them among the most efficacious means of grace. For, says he, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily, for a few days, corrected us after their own pleasure. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them that are exercised thereby. When faith is in very lively exercise, believers can rejoice even in tribulation, not that they could cease to feel the pain of the rod, for then it would cease to be an affliction. But while they experience the smart, they are convinced that it is operating as a salutary, though bitter medicine, and they rejoice in the prospect or feeling of returning health. But again, God pours not the rich consolations of his grace into a heart that is not broken. He sendeth the rich empty away. The whole need, not a physician. But when he by affliction, he has broken the hard heart and emptied it of self-confidence, he delights to pour in the joy of the Holy Ghost. Therefore it often occurs that the believer's most joyful seasons are his suffering seasons. He has, it is true, more pungent pain than when in prosperity and ease, but he has also richer, deeper droughts of consolation. Though sorrow and joy are opposite, there is a mysterious connection between them. Sorrow, as it were, softens and prepares the heart for the reception of the joy of the Lord. As the dispensations of God towards his children are exceedingly diverse in different ages, so his dealings with individual believers who live at the same time are very different. Why is it so, we cannot tell, but we are sure that he has wise reasons for all that he does. In some cases, pious persons appear to pass through life with scarcely a touch from his rod while others, who to us do not need, appear to need more chastisement than those, are held the greater part of their life under the heavy pressure of affliction, with scarcely any intermission. Here is a Christian man who has nearly reached the usual termination of human life, and has hardly known what external affliction is in his own experience. Prosperity has attended him through his whole course, but there is a desolate widow who has been bereaved of her husband and children and has neither brother nor sister, nephew nor niece, and for eight years has been confined to her bed 
by wasting and painful disease and has no hope of relief on this side of the grave. Such a disparity is striking, but we see only the outside of things. There are sore afflictions of the mind while the body is in health. That man may have never, that man may have never severe chastisement than this afflicted, desolate widow. I have heard an ancient, aged Christian declare that though he had experienced much sickness, lost many dear friends, and went with many sore disappointments in life, his sufferings on these accounts were not to be compared with the internal anguish which he often endured, and of which no creature had the least conception. This shows that we are not competent to form an accurate judgment of the sufferings of different persons. Besides, when affliction has been long continued, we become in a measure accustomed to it, and, as it were, hardened against it. But when we judge of such cases, we transfer our own acute feelings to the condition, which are no correct standard of the sufferings of the patient under a lingering disease. The widow to whom I referred was not fictitious, but a real person. I once visited her, and conversed with her, and, uh, and found her serene and happy, desiring nothing but a speedy departure, that she might be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But she was not impatient. She was willing to remain and suffer just as long as God pleased. Her heart was truly subdued to the obedience of Christ. There was not, there was only one earthly object for which she seemed to feel solicitude, and that was the little forsaken and almost desolate church of which she was a member. For a series of years, disaster after disaster had fallen upon this little flock. The house of worship had been actually potentially burnt. They had been so long without a pastor that they dwindled down to a few disheartened and scattered members, and only one aged elder remained. Seldom was there an occasional sermon in the place, as they had no convenient house of meeting on the Sabbath. Now, although this poor widow could not have attended if there had been preaching every day's Lord's Day, yet that little church lay as a burden on her mind. And I heard a minister who knew the circumstances say that as once a poor wise man saved a city, so this poor, pious widow by her prayers saved a church from extinction. For before her death, a neat new church was erected, and a pastor settled, and the number of souls hopefully, hopefully converted and gathered into the church. I was once on a visit to a friend, and requested me to accompany her to a sick woman, supposed to be near her end. The house was not a cabin, but a mere wreck of a once comfortable dwelling. Every appearance of comfort was absent. The partitions appeared to be taken down, and the whole house was turned into one large room. There was no glass in the windows, but that mattered not. It was summer. Upon entering this desolate place, I saw the sick woman lying on a miserable bed, unable to raise her head from the pillow 
and attended only by an aged mother about 80 years of age and a little daughter about 7 or 8. Here indeed seemed to be the very picture of wretchedness. And I was told that her brutal husband generally came home drunk and never gave her a kind or soothing word. Here the conclusion. I very thought before I left the house that this was the happiest woman I ever saw. Her devout and tender eye was sweetly fixed on heaven. Her countenance was serene and illumined with a heavenly smile. Chapter 16 Deathbed of the Believer We have arrived now at a very solemn part of our subject. The writer feels that it is so to himself, as he knows that he must soon be called to travel the road which leads to the narrow house appointed for all living. If after God, having gone through this scene, he were permitted to return and finish these papers on religious experience by narrating what the soul suffers in passing the gate of death, and more especially what are its views and feelings the moment after death, he would be able to give information which at present no mortal can communicate. The thought has often occurred, when thinking on this subject, that the surprise of such a transition as that from time to eternity, from the state of imprisonment in this clay tenement to an unknown state of existence, would be overwhelming even to the pious. But these are short-sighted reflections. We undertake to judge of eternal things by rules only suited to our present state of being and our present feelings. That the scene will be new and sublime, beyond all conception, cannot be doubted. But what our susceptibilities and feelings will be when separated from the body, we cannot tell. It is not possible that our entrance on the unseen world may be preceded by a course of gradual preparation for the wonderful objects which it contains and analogous to our progress through infancy in the present world. That knowledge of future things will be grad acquired gradually and not instantaneously. We are led to believe from the constitution of the human mind and from all the ana an analogies of nature. The soul may therefore have to go to school again to learn the first elements of celestial knowledge and who will be the instructors, or how long this training may continue, it would be vain to conjecture. Whether this gradual progress in the knowledge of heavenly things are reminiscent, or the transactions in which we are engaged upon earth will be from the first vivid and perfect, or whether these things will at first be buried in a sort of oblivion and be brought up to view gradually and successfully, who can tell us? But I must withdraw my imagination from a subject to which her powers are entirely inadequate. Though I, have found, though I have been fond of those writings of Thomas Dick, Isaac Taylor, Isaac Watch, which give free scope to reasonings from analogy in regard to the future condition of the believer, then I'm persuaded that they are nothing to our real knowledge. Their lucubrations resemble the vain efforts of a man born blind to describe to his fellow sufferers the brilliance of the stars, the splendor of the sun, or the milder beauties of a lovely landscape. 
while he seems to, enjoy, to, to himself to approach nearest to the object, he is in fact most remote from any just conceptions of it. This brings to recollection what has often appeared highly probable in regard to the development of our mental powers, that as in infancy, that as in infancy, some of our most important faculties, as for example, reason, conscience, and taste, are entirely dormant, and gradually and slowly make their appearance afterwards. So probably, this whole life is a state of infancy in relation to that which is to come, and there may exist now, in these incomprehensible souls of ours, germs of faculties never in the least developed in this world, but which will spring into activity as soon as the soul fills the penetrating beams of celestial light, and which will be brought to maturity just at the time when they are needed. The capacity of the beatific vision may now be possessed by the soul, deeply enveloped in that darkness which conceals the eternal internal powers of the mind even from itself, except so far as they are manifested by their actual exercise. How shallow then is all our mental philosophy, by which we attempt to explore the depths of the human mind. But are these conjectural speculations for edification? Do they bring us any near to God and to our beloved Redeemer? I cannot say that they do. At the best, they are no more than an innocent amusement. In indulging them, we are in great danger of becoming presumptuous, and even foolish, by supposing that we possess knowledge, when in fact our brightest light is but darkness. Vain man would be wise. Let us then cease from man. Let us cease from our own unsubstantial dreams, and lay fast hold of the sure word of prophecy, as of a light shining in the dark place to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to these, there is no light in them, as some render the passage. Light shall never arise to them. One simple declaration of the word of God is worth more to a soul descending into the valley and shadow of death than all the ingenious and vivid imaginations of the brightest human minds. In view of the absolute, an undoubted certainty of our departure out of life, it seems passing strange that we should be so unconcerned. If even one of a million escaped death, this might afford some shadow of a reason for our carelessness, but we know that it is appointed unto men once to die. In this warfare there is no discharge, and yet most men live as if they were immortal. I remember the foolish thought which entered my childish mind and my mother informed me that we all must die. I entertained the hope that before my time came, some great change would take place. I knew not how, by which I should escape this dreadful event. I have nothing to do with the death of the wicked at present. The dying experience of the believer is our proper subject, and we read that one object of Christ's coming into the world was to deliver such as were all their lifetime subject to bondage, fear of death. Death, in itself considered, is a most formidable evil and can be desirable to none. The fear of death is not altogether the consequence of sin. The thing is abhorrent to the constitution of man. Death was held up in terror 
to our first parents when innocent to prevent their transgression. And having entered the world by their sin, in whom we all sinned, this event has been ever since a terror to mortals, the king of terrors. Man instinctively cleaves to life. So does every sentient being. There are only two things which can possibly have the effect of reconciling any man to death. The first is the hope of escaping from misery, which is felt to be intolerable. The other, an assurance of a better, that is, a heavenly country. The captain of our salvation conquered death. And him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, by dying himself. By this means he plucked from this monster his deadly sting by satisfying the demands of God's holy law. For the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. All those, therefore, who are united to Christ meet death as a conquered and disarmed enemy. Against them he is powerless. Still, however, he wears a threatening aspect, and although he cannot kill, he can frown and threaten, and this often frightens the timid sheep. They often do not know that they are delivered from his tyranny, and that, none, and, and that now he can do nothing but falsely accuse, and roar like a hungry lion, disappointed of his prey. They are still, there are still some who all their lifetime are subject to bondage, through fear of death. Their confidence is shaken by so many distressing doubts. But though severely engaged in the service of God, they can never think of death without a sense of regret. And often they are afraid that when the last conflict shall come, they shall be so overwhelmed with terror and despair that they shall prove a dishonor to their Christian profession. I recollect a sickly but pious lady who, with a profusion of tears, expressed her anxiety and fear in the view of her approaching end. There seemed to be ground for her foreboding apprehensions, because from the beginning of her profession she had joined no comfortable assurance, but was of the number of those who, who though they fear God and obey the voice of his servant, yet walk in darkness and have no light and comfort. But mark the goodness of God, and the fidelity of the great shepherd. Some months afterwards I saw this lady on her deathbed, and was astonished to find that Christ had delivered her entirely from her bondage. She was now near her end, and knew it, but she shed no tears now, but those of joy and gratitude. All her darkness and sorrow were gone. Her heart glowed with love to the Redeemer, and all her anxiety now was to depart and to be with Jesus. There was, as it were, a beaming of heaven in her countenance. I had before tried to comfort her, but now I sat down by her bedside to listen to the gracious words which proceeded from her mouth and could not but send up the fervent aspiration, Oh, let me die the death of the righteous unless my last end be like hers. Then I knew that there was one who had conquered death, and him who was, has the power of death, for Satan, to the last moment, was not permitted to molest her. 
Your arguments have ever superbly operated on my mind, convinced me of the reality and power of experimental religion, as witnessing the last exercises of some of God's children. Some of these scenes, though long past, have left an indelible impression on my memory, and I hope a salutary impression on my heart. Another lady, and a near relative of the former, had often observed passing along her way, humble, gentle, silent, evidently not seeking to be conspicuous, but rather to remain unnoticed and unknown. She had a few chosen female friends with whom she freely communicated, for her heart was affectionate and her disposition sociable. To these she poured out her most soul and received from them a similar return. She was crushed under habitual pain of domestic affliction but not of that kind which freely utters its complaints and engages the sympathy of many. Her sorrows were such as her delicacy of feeling did not permit her to allude to. The conduct of an imprudent father weighed heavily on her spirits, but towards him and her mother being dead, she kept his house. She was assiduously respectful, and while he made himself the laughing stock of his acquaintances, she endeavoured to make his home comfortable. But often I thought that her lively sensibility to the ridicule and reproaches that fell upon him would be an injury to her delicate constitution. And the more so, because this was a subject in which she would not converse, not even with the intimate, confidential friends before mentioned. It was evident that her health was slowly giving way, and that the disease which carries off nearly one half of the adults in this land was secretly concerning her vitals. But she never complained, and seemed rather to become more cheerful, as her eye became more brilliant, and her cheeks more pallid. She was for a long time after this seen occupying her humble retired place in the house of God, and still went her accustomed rounds among her poor and sick neighbours, while doing everything to render home comfortable to her restless and happy parent. At length, however, her strength failed, and she was obliged to confine herself to the house and before long to her bed. Being informed of this, as her pastor, I visited her. Hitherto, her extreme modesty and retired habits had prevented me from having much personal acquaintance with this excellent woman. I was accompanied to the house by one of her intimate friends. As was a cottage, and all its furniture of home manufacture, but upon the whole there was impressed a neatness and order, which indicated a superior taste in her, who had long had the sole management. I did not know but that from her habitual reserve and silence she should, would be embarrassed in her feelings and reserved in her communications, but I was happily disappointed. She received me with a passionate smile and a cordial shake of the hand and said that she was pleased that I had thought it worth my while to come and see a poor dying woman. Not many minutes were spent 
and compliments or general marks. She entered freely and most intelligently into a narrative of her religious exercises which had commenced at an early period of her life and, expat- and expatiated in the sweetest manner on the divine excellencies of the Saviour. Not as one who was speaking what she had learned from others of the mere exertion of her own intellect, but as one who felt in the heart every word which she uttered. There was a gentleness, a suavity, and a meek humility expressed in every tone of her voice, and the same was depicted in every lineament of her countenance. Though when in health she was never reckoned beautiful, yet there was now in her countenance, animated with hope and love and religious joy, or rather peace, a beauty of countenance which I never saw equaled. It was what may without impiety be called spiritual beauty. I found what I had not known before, that her mind had been highly cultivated by reading. This was manifest in the propriety, indeed I may say elegance, of her language. Not that she aimed at saying fine things. Such an idea never entered her humble mind, but possessing naturally a good understanding which she had carefully improved by reading, especially the best religious authors, and now being animated with a flow of pious affection which seemed never to ebb, all these things gave her language a fluency, a glow, and a vividness which was truly remarkable. I have often regretted that I did not put down at the time her most striking expressions, but the mere words could convey no more than the shadow of such a scene. It has often been remarked that the speeches of great orators, when written and read, have scarcely a resemblance to the same speeches delivered with all the pathos, the grace, and the varied intonations and gestures of the orator. The same may truly be said of the sayings of a dying Christian. We may catch the very words, but the spirit, the sacred and sound tones, free from all affectation, the heavenly serenity of countenance, and the nameless methods of manifesting the pious affections of the heart, never can be preserved, nor distinctly conveyed by words to others. The mind of this young lady possessed a uniform serenity, undisturbed with fears, doubts or cares. Everything, everything seemed right to her submissive temper. It was enough that her Heavenly Father appointed it to be so. For many weeks she lay in this state of perfect tranquility, as it were in the suburbs of heaven, and I believe no one ever heard a complaint from her lips. Even that grief which had preyed on her health when she was able to go about and now ceased to cause her pain. Here was, in my apprehension, the most approximate approximation to complete happiness which I ever saw upon earth. Yet there was no violence of feeling, no agitation, no rapture. It was that kind of happiness which, from its gentleness and calmness, is capable of continuance. As it was her request that I should visit her often, I did so as frequently as the distance of my residence and my other avocations would permit. Not, as I often said, with any expectation of communicating any good to her, 
but of receiving spiritual benefit from our heavenly conversation. Oh, how often did I wish that the boldest infidels, and they were rampant at that time, could have been introduced into the chamber of this dying saint. Often, especially after witnessing the scene, I endeavor to subscribe to such as attending preaching the power of religion to sustain the soul in the last earthly conflict, but they were incredulous as to the facts, or ascribed them to some strange enthusiasm which buoyed up the soul in a pre- preternatural manner. For here there was no enthusiasm, nothing approaching to what may be called a heated imagination. All was sober, all was serene, all was gentle was rational, and although five and forty years have passed since this scene was witnessed, the impression on my mind is distinct and vivid. The indescribable countenance, calm but animated, pale with disease but lighted up with an unearthly smile, the sweet and affectionate tones of voice, patient, submissive, cheerful, grateful temper, are all remembered with a vividness and permanence with which I remembered nothing of recent occurrence. When I think of such things, I have often thought and said, if this be delusion, let my soul forever remain under such delusion. If the foregoing was a sample of the deathbed exercises of all Christians, then would I say that their last days are their best days, and the day of death happier than the day of birth. This, however, is far from being a true state, a view of the general fact. It is, it is a select case, one of a thousand, upon the whole the happiest death I ever witnessed. I have indeed been dying, seen dying persons agitated with a kind of delirious nature, rapture, in which the imagination had been so excited that the person looked and spoke as if the objects of another world were actually present to the view. In such case, the nervous system loses its tone, and when the general feelings are pious and the thoughts directed heavenward, the whole system is filled with an indescribable emotion. We have a number of recorded death scenes which partake of this character, and are greatly admired and extolled by the injudicious and fanatical. Things of this kind are frequently affected disease, and sometimes in medicine operating on the idiosyncrasy of particular persons. Such persons may be pious, but the extraordinary exhilaration and ecstasy of which they are the subjects ought not to be ascribed to supernatural influence, but to physical causes. Between such experiences and the case described above, there is no resemblance than between a blazing meteor which soon burns itself out, and the steady genial beams of the vernal sun. I once witnessed an extraordinary scene of this kind in a skeptic, who neglected religion and scoffed at all professors who were very near the close of life. He then seemed to be agitated and exhilarated with the religious ideas and feelings, leading him to profess his faith in Christ, and to rejoice and exult in assurance of salvation and all this without any previous conviction of sin, and unmingled at the time with deep penitential feelings. Well, why, well, why might it not have been an instance of sovereign grace, like that of the thief on the cross? It is possible, 
that in life, that piety which is founded on knowledge, and in which the faculties of the mind continue to be well balanced, and the judgment sound, is by far the least suspicious. So those deathbed exercises, which are of a similar nature, are much to be preferred to those which are flighty, and in which reason seems to regulate the helm no longer, but excited in a regular imagination, assumes the government of the man. According to this rule, some glowing narratives of death scenes will be set aside, as if not spurious, yet not deserving to be admired and celebrated, as they often are. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.